Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to Software Radio. Software Radio on time, on target. I'm your host today, Steve Balistrieri. Joining us today is we have a great guest already on the line with us, Bing West. He's been uh, a prolific author. He was a Marine Corps veteran. Uh, He fought in Vietnam, and then he's written a slew of books about combat, mostly about the Marines. We got to get him on to the special operators of the (laughs) Army too on this, but uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, we want to welcome him to the podcast. Bing has been, like I said, uh, he grew up around Marines. He was a Marine. His son was a Marine. Uh, I think both of them served in Force Recon, but we'll ask him that as soon as uh, we get him on the line here. So, Bing, welcome, sir. We want to thank you for uh, taking the time to join us this afternoon because uh, we want to discuss your newest book that was just released I believe today, the last platoon. Well, thank you, Steve. Yeah, glad to be here. Mm. It's our pleasure. It's our pleasure and totally here. So, <clears throat> yeah, uh, you growing up in Dorchester, Massachusetts, I, I read your bio. So, of course, I, I was like, well, we have to get him on now in the podcast because of a fellow Red Sox fan. So, uh, but 
I, I, the one of the things that I saw in your bio was, um, I guess probably when you were about six or seven years old, um, your dad had uh, allowed a local baseball team full of, you know, Marine Corps vets to use your home's attic as a clubhouse. So you got, you know, uh, you got bitten by the bug at a very early age, didn't you? Well, it, it was really a little bit earlier when just I was two when the war began. And my mom, her brothers were all members of a baseball team, and they used the upstairs of our house, as you indicated, as the clubhouse. So they went off to Guadalcanal. The Marines won't do that anymore, but they allowed the entire baseball team to go off together. And, and they stopped doing that because so many of them were, were killed out of the same groups. But when they would come home from the islands, they didn't know how to talk to their parents about what they had been doing. They are only 18, 19-year-olds. So they'd all come to the clubhouse and my mother sent me up there with it, with her brothers because she thought, well, they're the built-in babysitters. Well, they weren't <laughs> going to stay around the house. So from, from 1942 to 1947, I was basically raised by the Marines because we had six other kids in our family, but the Marines <laughs> would sneak down the back stairs. They, they put a blanket around me and tell me to shush. And we get down, and the next thing I know, I'd be sitting on a bar stool or sitting on the bar while they're all drinking. You know, so <laughs> talk about being, you know, hit with the bug. In 1945, both uncles are platoon commanders in the infantry on Okinawa. And my mother's scared to death that her two brothers are going to be killed. And she said, you have to do something for the war effort. So I had this blanket I loved, and, and she said, with that, I threw it out the window, and I said, that's for the dirty yellow baskets. And she said, at that point, she thought something was happening up in that clubhouse that shouldn't be happening. So, <laughs> so needless to say, you know, when I, when I got out of college, I enlisted and became a Marine and went to Vietnam and uh, fought. And it was just inevitable I was going to do it. Right, and, uh, you know, it's funny because you talk about the Marines – back in the uh, Second World War, with so many of the guys going off to fight back then. And that's a big difference between, I think, what's happening today and what happened in World War II, obviously a much larger scale. But, you know, those guys all were very humble. They, uh, when they came home, they didn't want to make a big deal out of themselves. So, you know, they didn't really know how to talk to anybody about their experiences other than themselves. I know my father was the same way. He fought in World War II in Europe. Uh, in, he was in armor, and he, he fought the Germans, and he would never talk about it until, unless some of his army buds who grew up around with him that served with him, they would come over our house maybe once or twice a year during the summer, and then they'd get off on their own and talk about it. And I, I think that's a, it, it's a very common thing for that generation, wasn't it? Well, it was, and I think for, for a good reason. I mean, we now have pictures like Saving Private Ryan, so gradually we, we understood that was a total war. <clears throat> and when they were out there, those were the killing fields, especially for the infantry. And yet when they came home, they were still part of a united nation. You know, we weren't separated as a nation. So I can understand why they didn't want to come back and sort of say, holy smokes, what I had to do on Iwo Jima or on Normandy, you know, they, and they didn't have, I mean, the other interesting thing is 
Today, we would say every one of those guys had post-traumatic stress. I mean, oh, yeah. of course they did. But, you know, it, they had loving families to come back to. The, the nation was happy that the war was over and they had won it. And I think that helped them all get over it. But, wow, they saw much more combat, I think, at least equal to what I saw in Vietnam and to what, what you know, the, the younger generation saw in Afghanistan and, and, and Iraq. Yeah, and, and that's a good point. I mean, but, you know, even as yourself, you led 100 combat patrols during the Vietnam War. And that was kind of during the peak between 66 and 1968, which I'm assuming you were there during Tet Offensive. Uh, well, after, but, mm -hmm. you know, I think you and I and all the listeners know all the same thing. I mean, you get on battlefields, it is plain luck that you come back and somebody else doesn't, or that you still have your legs and the next guy doesn't. We all know that. I mean, it, it, it's not any special skill. I mean, you, your head's on a swivel, you try to do everything right, but you know it's just a coin flip. And I was just plain lucky. I, I, my biggest, my fourth recon uh, squad, well, we only had five of us. <laughs> I can't imagine they did this. They sent us into the DMZ, this is in 66, into the demilitarized zone because we had a, a North Vietnamese division attacking us uh, along the northern border of South Vietnam, and they wanted to know what was going on. What was going on? Holy smokes. By the third day, we were so deep in there, we were seeing North Viets everywhere. And we made the mistake of calling in some arty. And then they found out we were there and they came after us and, and we had no way out. I thought, oh, geez. And I was on the phone on the PRC 25, you know, screaming for any station, any help. And this tiny little, little look like a pipe of cub comes overhead. And this guy says on, on the FM, he said, uh, get your heads down. And with that, he fires two dinky little rockets. And I thought, God, there are at least 100 of them coming up that damn hill. And he fires two rockets. That was the last thing I remember for about 10 minutes. There was an F-8 going up north to hit a bridge up in Hanoi. And instead, this, this bird dog called to him and said, that, that, those guys, that Force Recon gang, they're going under. You have to drop on them. And he dropped two 2,000-pound bombs. And ooh, that was it. I mean, we, when we came to, and I, I got on the, on the radio, and I said, you son of a bitch, you dropped on us. You dropped on us. And he was up there circling around the pilot. Uh, Orson Swindle was his name, above the, the, the fact. And he said, over, over the freak, he heard that come through. And he said, those are the most wonderful words he ever heard. <laughs> because he thought he killed us, and and that was the end of the North Vietz for a while, and and we we were able to get out of there the next day. So, you know, you run into those kinds of things, and and you you just you, you're fortunate that you make it out. Right. I I was talking uh, about a week ago with one of the guys who was involved in Max Sog, and uh, I remember when I was a young buck going through the Special Forces course, we had one of those guys you know, with a lot of combat experience during that time, doing the same kind of thing you're talking about. He came and spoke to our class and, and he was saying, yeah, sometimes, you know, you get dropped in and you don't realize it, but you're right in the middle of a lot of 
North Vietnamese oh, yeah. soldiers, and you're just running for your life. And one of the kids said, how close were they? And he said, well, one of those little, uh, uh, I forget what he called, how he termed right. it, but right. one of those little guys threw a hand grenade at us and it hit me in the back of the head as I was running down the trail. And uh, he said, yeah. and it bounced off and went from there. And then the guy said, did it explode? And he was like, yeah, it killed me. Don't you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, that was a brilliant question. Yeah, Sog, 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 wow. I mean, those guys, and, and when they were in the special camps where, where they had the Montagnards, et cetera, up, up on the hills, whoo, I mean, they really took, took a beating, especially in 68. By 69, we began to get things under control, but 67 and 68, they were getting walloped. Yeah. Well, which brings us to, you know, uh, at the end of your combat tour, the Marines uh, assigned you to write small unit action in Vietnam, which is like a, it was pretty much a guide for units coming in and fighting in the country. And then you also wrote the village uh, about the combat action platoons who lived with the Vietnamese locals. Obviously, you guys saw a lot of combat because you were kind of on the tip of the spear out there. And uh, that that kind of set you, I guess, your your next career was writing, I mean, writing books and, and uh, going on from there. How successful do you believe that that first book, Small Action Unit in Vietnam, was for, for troops coming in. Do you think it was, uh, it was very worthwhile? It was something, you know, lessons learned where these guys were taking the, those uh, um, words to heart? Well, 100,000 copies of it were, were circulated inside uh, not only the Marines, but also the Army. Because it, it it gave the the E fives and the E sixes and uh, the O ones and O twos going over a sense for what it was going to be like in a platoon and what they had to watch out for. And I tried to put in all the different different kinds of combat that that the Marines had sent me in, so they had different vignettes, and I kept every vignette separate from the other one and just indicated this is how it is. So it, I hope it did help somewhat. Well, which will bring. I know that you you spent a lot of time with the Marines in in Iraq and Afghanistan. I think uh, you've been over there about thirty or forty times. Right. And uh, yeah, so I mean, you spent a lot of time with the troops in the field. Obviously, uh, you weren't spending time in Kabul. So, uh, which brings us to your last book. I know you've written quite a few about you know, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, but I wanted to talk to you about your latest book, The Last Platoon, because what I, I thought the fascinating part of it is, is you're dealing with a very small unit, uh, a security platoon that's being tapped to do a special mission. You're getting their perspective. They're attached with some CIA guys who are, you know, their special activities guys, you're getting their perspective. And you also, you know, it, this is written as a novel. You're, you're getting the perspective of the Taliban guys that they're going against. And, and you know, for a lot of our, I say countrymen here in the United States, 
they they have a hard time understanding the mindset of the Taliban. And I think that's what this book right here, well, I think it opens a lot of eyes because if you haven't been there, you're not familiar with what's going on. They're quite different than, and they have a different mindset than the people here in the West. Well, thank you, Steve. That's what I was trying to do. Um, I've been over there for so long, so many years. And, and I, you know, I, I get along well with, with a lot of the generals, not all of them. Some of them really dislike me, but I, I couldn't, I couldn't understand what we were doing. I really could not because uh, Afghanistan is, is a set of tribes that are hurtling headlong into the ninth century. I mean, they haven't made it to the 10th century yet. And, mm -hmm. and, and we were sent over there to, to nation build and make Democrats and Republicans out of them. I, our troops, I, I, I never understood what we were doing out there. And um, the generals got very annoyed with me, but I was getting annoyed with them because I kept saying, I don't know what you think we're doing out in those. You, you, you walk around until you get into a fight with the Taliban and you think you're making progress. So I tried in this book to take 20 years and put it into, into one, one story of what happened to one platoon and also put in what I knew about the Taliban and how they were thinking and why they were fighting and link them back to the guys who were in charge of them in Pakistan because they have their own chain of command and they're safe in Pakistan. And then I linked this platoon all the way back to the president and secretary of defense in Washington to try to show people that at the top, they didn't know the white house had no humility and, and whether it be under Republican or Democrat, they didn't really know what was going on out there. And they year after year doing this was like banging your head against cement. So I tried, I tried in the book to show what the war looked like, what it really was from different points of view, the enemy as well as us. I think that's a great point. And that comes clear as a bell through in the book because, you know, you're talking about the Taliban, the, the, the one individual leader, you know, in this small area that you're talking about, uh, his name is Zahra uh, Book. Uh, yeah. yeah. And he had someone to answer to just like, you know, yeah. the, the Americans do. And, you know, both of them are being led from, well, in the Americans' case, like six, 7,000 miles away. And the people in Washington have no concept on what's going on, you know, really on the ground in Afghanistan. They're trying to, you know, they're trying to micromanage a war from thousands of miles away and it doesn't work. And he, I mean, his mindset's quite different than a Marine you know, officers is, but this czar character, he, his strings are being pulled too. Well, and that's what I was trying to indicate. Czar wanted to win. He wanted to, he wanted to keep his drugs. He wanted to, he, he wanted to become the Emir and Helmand, but he knew he couldn't stand up to the Marines and the CIA guys in a, in an all out firefight. So he was doing the usual stuff, putting out the IEDs, et cetera. But his guys were getting whacked and and his chain of command didn't want to hear that. And he didn't want to admit that he wasn't up to the task 
So he was kind of resisting and looking for a way out. And they finally had to send in, which I don't want to give away the book, but right. the, the, the top finally sent in some others to try to help him out. But he was he wasn't quite telling the truth at all to his chain of command. And and in our side, I think we have such a can-do attitude, beginning with the corporal and going all the way up the chain of command. It's very difficult to give a special forces group or an ODA group or, or the, you know, the 10th Mountain or the 1st Marine Division or something, an assignment, and have them come back and say, we're not really getting it done. So by the time you get up the chain of command, it becomes so fuzzy that it infuriated me because no one was asking the real hard question. Now, wait a minute. If we're doing so well, why have we been doing it for 20 years without making any progress? So in the book, I try to show how that happens from, from all the angles. And that's why I called it the last platoon, because yeah. this was the last platoon to try to do it. Yeah, excellent. Hey, we're going to continue with this, but first I have to read a quick uh, note from one of our sponsors, and we're going to get right back to it. Sure. Hey, everyone. While it's no secret that big tech companies are tracking and listening to everything we do these days, did you know that active duty military and veterans are even more likely to be targeted by scams, predatory ads, and data thieves? Wondering how you can prevent them from tracking you and others from listening to your private conversations and manipulating your thoughts, your family's actions, or even your votes? Fight back with Winston Privacy and defend yourself against the enemies who will take advantage of your military service and steal your personal information for their illicit gain. So fight back against big tech and spying. Get $20 off today with our exclusive promo. Just go to winstonprivacy.com slash softrep. That's winstonprivacy.com backslash softrep or use the coupon code softrep20. All right, we're back to our podcast here, and we're on the line with Bing West, and we're talking about his book, The Last Platoon. And and again, um, uh, sir, you, you wrote about our strategy to nation build among illiterate tribes was foolish, and I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions, and again, you you talked about it. You know, the, the people from the Taliban, they, they have no loyalty to a you know, a nationalist government, it's all tribal and, you know, they're dealing with ninth century, you know, I guess, uh, beliefs. Well, you add you, on the one hand, the Taliban, well, three things are happening. The, the first, the Taliban genuinely believe in their idea of a caliphate and, and how terrible the West is and how they have to kill us, you know, but, not as I mean, there are differences between them and the Al Qaeda who who brought down the you know the the twin towers, but not that big a difference. They're 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 true believers that radical Islam is the way to go. So that's the first thing that that is in their heads. But the second thing that's there is that they're winning, and and you and I both know if if you're winning on a battlefield, your morale goes up. And the morale of, of the, the government forces goes down. And part of that is because most of the Taliban are postumes. 
and they live in the eastern part of Afghanistan. And most of the soldiers for the government who are down there fighting them, they're not Pashtuns because the Pashtuns won't join with the government. They're Tajiks, and many of them don't speak Pashtu, and they're sent down to this area. So they, the government forces aren't not out in the countryside. They're not. The Taliban control the countryside in eastern Afghanistan. And the third thing that, that people just aren't aware of, <laughs> the Helmand province and, and Afghanistan overall ship out 90% of the heroin that is consumed in, in Europe and Russia. These, many of these people are darned rich. Uh, these farmers are not poor. They're all growing poppy. And we're out there sort of saying, work with the central government and you shouldn't be growing poppy. Hello? You know, as far as they were concerned, we're on the wrong side. So I try in the book to bring all that in. You know, their their firm belief on the one hand, the enemy's firm belief, and on the other hand, the drugs, because that's a big part of it. And they're all part of it. All the farmers are part of it. One of the things we used to do, which is pretty funny, you know, every place you'd go, you're out on patrol. And um, who are the Afghans with you? Well, there'd be a few Afghans with you, but they'd always give us an interpreter, a Turk, who basically from the time he was about 14 or 15 on would um, watch the soaps all day long, you know, the TV soaps. And and then then he'd get a job as a Turk. And he'd be out with a platoon and you'd be walking along and the farmers would be yelling at you as we're going through the poppy fields, which are gorgeous when they're, when they're in full bloom with the purple and the white. And the turp would always yell back, no, 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 no. And I said to them, so what are you saying? They said, well, you know, sir, there are lists of people whose poppy you're supposed to destroy. So all the turps would always say, the, the farmers would say, am I on the list? And the turps would already yell back, nope, nope, <laughs> because they didn't want the farmers, you know, shooting at us. I mean, where are we? We're in the, the Wizard of Oz country. It, it's amazing because, you know, with all of this going on, you would think that we would have had some kind of a strategy to get them to stop doing that. And I know that that's a losing strategy. I mean, we tried it in you know, Bolivia, I was down there for that. Colombia, I was down there for that. But, you know, but we just kind of turned a blind eye to that opium trade. And, you know, um, and, and of course, all the heroin that's coming out of there. I mean, you know, you talk about it in the book, and I never realized how much money was flowing through to these farmers, because we always kind of assumed that the farmers were at the low end of the totem pole and weren't really making any money. But it's not really true, is it? Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. 
you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. No, the, the opposite is true, that the, the farmers are making uh, an awful lot of money. It's an awful lot of money. So, Yeah, and still, the Taliban, that's, I mean, that's where they're raising all their money, is it? They get, they get about two-thirds of their money is drug money, and another third is payoff money. Um, they collect from everybody for, for little things. And we pretty much, I think, cut off the Saudis from, from uh, you know, subsidizing them the way they did at a certain time. Um, but they still have pretty, pretty deep coffers. And the more they win, they, the, the more people will give them money because they're afraid. Mm-hmm. Well, getting back to the book now, and I don't want to give yep. too much away because uh... – I, I definitely encourage all of our listeners and, you know, soft rep readers out there to, to purchase this. It's a fantastic book. It's almost called like the last, a, called the last, called, called the last platoon. <laughs> the last platoon. The last, and, yeah. <laughs> and it's a, uh, it sounds, it, it, it reads like a true story cloaked in fiction. That's all I'll say about that. But I wanted to ask you about your protagonist, Captain Cruz. Yeah, is he based on maybe a person that you've known, or is he maybe a conglomeration of a bunch of different people? You know, um, authors are always asked that question. See, um, <laughs> the answer is yes, and yes, um, he he's a real human being. I mean, at, you can't be out there with those with those troops and embedded uh, and watching all the leadership styles without really saying, you know, his leadership style, Cruz, he, he's, he, 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 he's the kind of leader I'd really like to be out there. And then what you do is you, and, and any, any novelist will tell you this, you start with the idea who these characters are going to be. Uh-uh, that lasts for about uh, the first draft. Then the characters run away with you. They run away with the book. They'll say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this. And every <laughs> every single novelist will tell you that, and and my 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 wife <laughs> Betsy occasionally, I'll be sitting there at the, the you know we're eating dinner and all of a sudden uh, I'll be quiet, and she'll say you're doing it again you're talking to those characters, <laughs> and they'll be up in my mind and I'll be arguing with them about something, and so yeah. with Cruz, Cruz is a real guy they're all real but they're composites. But the moral dilemmas that he had, and I kept putting in these these problems, that he's not one-sided in his character. He doesn't do everything right. He makes some mistakes, uh, some big mistakes, some small mistakes, just like all the rest of us. He, the character, had to figure out what he was going to do. I wasn't going to figure it out for him. Right. And, you know, I, he, of course, he's the central character in, in the book. And, you know, the, how you framed... His, uh, as you say, the moral dilemmas that are facing him. 
I, you know, I just thought he was such a real character. That's why when I was reading the book, I, I kept thinking he has to be based on somebody that you either knew or met. And uh, that his character was outstanding because, you know, he's the, he's the combat guy. He's, he's not a, uh, he's not an admin guy. He's not a paper pusher. He's at, you know, at his best when, stuff starts flying through the air and yeah, he does make mistakes. Everyone does. Uh, but I just thought, you know, the way he had to choose in combat between what he wanted in the States, because I don't want to get, again, yeah. I don't want to give too much away, but his sense of duty. And uh, I just thought that was really, really good. I thought it was really good. And I thought all the characters were good, but it, you know, obviously he's the central character, and <clears throat> I just thought that uh, you know, if if you're in combat, you want a Captain Cruz as your commander. Well, uh, next time I'm talking with him <laughs> in my head, <laughs> I'll tell him you said so. But the other thing, that, the other thing that you said, Steve, uh, only a grunt. Only somebody who's been out there and has the experience could say, because it, it all came down to that. When you said his sense of duty in the end, his sense of what he should do rather than what he knew would be best for his promotion, et cetera, that, that's what was weighing on his conscience. And I'm glad you brought that out. Let me just read these words to you, because I put this at the beginning of the book, and people forget this so quickly, but this is it. In doing what we ought, we deserve no praise because it is our duty. And St. Augustine wrote that. Yeah. And that, when you really think on that, when you do your duty, don't expect praise for it. Don't, don't expect that, gee, you know, look at me. No, you did your duty. Uh, but that's so hard to do. So, you, you know, we see so many people in life at, at all levels that we know are fakers and they got there they got ahead because they're fakers but when you run into somebody like cruz whom i have the pleasure of actually knowing then then you see the real guy who, who takes risks and does things knowing he's not going to get a good fitness report because he did it and it's actually going to hurt him and he still does it and that that's the again that's the kind of officer that you want when you know the stuff hits the fan i mean you know because he's not going to put his career first he's going to put the men first and the mission and that's the, the the those are the kind of leaders that you want well i do have to ask you um was there a reason why you framed it as a novel just so you could get all the perspective in there yes and i want to tell i wanted to tell a story so that the reader would keep turning the page and say, and then what happened? And then what happened? Because yeah. that's all. We all love stories. So this is a story. This is what happens to a small group of, of young men when they're put into a tough situation. And then the CIA comes in and the CIA has its own agenda. And then the president reluctantly has let this happen and doesn't think too much is going to go wrong. And then you have the Taliban led by Tsar saying, oh, they're not going to be on my turf. And then you have higher ups on the other side in Pakistan saying, uh-oh, they're getting too close to where we have $100 million at stake. And so from different perspectives, this suddenly begins to escalate. 
and no one any longer is in charge of it. This is going to be a dynamic that plays out, and it's kind of like a detective story, but you're playing for lives. Yeah, and, uh, you know, that's uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a compelling book. And like you said, you, every time you turn the page, you know, you want to ask, okay, now what's going to happen next? Because the, the characters are all, you know, you're, you're wondering if this guy Zara is going to fly off the handle, which he had been prone to do. Yep. And then you have so many of these other people involved. And then the, you bring in the CIA paramilitary guys who are a little bit older. They have a lot more experience than maybe the, the young grunts that are, you know, on their first tour with the Marines. So, you know, the Marines are naturally going to look up to these guys because they've kind of been there, done that. And they know that they can, they can sense that. And I thought that the realism that's involved with that, it, it all comes right through. And uh, um, did you have any contact when you were over in, in Afghanistan with any of the paramilitary guys from CIA? <laughs> <laughs> what I do you that. think? <laughs> Look, um, actually, I, I, I picked up, you said earlier in the conversation, special activities. So yeah. I, I know I'm talking to a guy who, who understands that. Um, and, and that's exactly what happens. Look, the agency has done a great job of, of picking the best out of the SF and out of, out of the Army and the Marines. Uh, okay, they can offer them more money and more freedom. And and they're doing very, very good work with their with their special teams. So I brought in some of those people so people would understand that these people really are out there and, and are very, very good. And and that leads to my next book because my next book I'm writing um, with the head of the special activities group who's now retired and, and we're trying to persuade people to, you know, you really want to know what they do? Here's, here's a book and that's the next, next book I'm doing. Oh, that's awesome. I can't wait to read that one because, uh, yeah, some of the, uh, the technology that they, those guys had in the book, it, um, you know, it's just astounding to, you know, those of us who served in an earlier generation, you know, we didn't have those kind of toys at our disposal. And it just, uh, right. I would have loved yeah, to have wanted- some of that. I wanted to bring that in, too, that when they go on a battlefield today, all the way down to the squad, right out there, I have them with their own little drones, because that's true. They have them in their own iPads. Um, and and the, the enemy has adapted, so I wanted to show them how Tsar and the other side were trying to combat against this, um, so that it's not all one-sided at all, but each side is trying to figure out how am I going to use my advantages to win this one? And so it's, 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 it's a mystery. Who's going to win. I'll bet you to the end, you didn't know who was going to win or lose on that one. No, I did not. And that's, that's the beauty of the book. And, and again, um, I think it's fantastic. So I can't wait to read the next one. Now, now, now you have my interest peaked, but uh (laughs) (laughs) I take it it's going to take a little while for that to come out since this one just was released today. But, you know, that that was the the curse of getting an advanced copy because now I've already read it. And uh, but I, I don't want to give too much away. Like I said on our podcast, we will do a review of the book for our, our listeners out there. We, we will post a review of the book on our website. 
uh, we'll have that up ASAP. But uh, we encourage all of our uh, listeners and readers out there, check it out. You'll definitely enjoy this. I think it's a fantastic book. And uh, <clears throat> if you want to know what's going on in Afghanistan, this is why we've been there for 20 years, I believe. And we're back to square one. Well, thank you very much, Steve. So I enjoyed writing the last platoon, and I, I hope it does help our troops that people will know what they really do. So I appreciate very much, you know, you're having me on. Well, it was our pleasure, sir. And, uh, you know, thanks again. And, oh, before I would be remiss if I didn't mention, I'm sure many of our listeners know this, uh, your son Owen was also a Marine uh, recon platoon leader uh, and I believe a company commander. And he was the undersecretary of state, uh, excuse me, undersecretary of defense for special operations. So um, I guess the yeah. apple didn't fall yeah. far from the tree there. Well, I, I had the honor under president Reagan of being the assistant secretary for international security. And then Owen uh, my son was the assistant secretary under my good friend, General Jim Mattis, uh, for special operations. But you did say when we when we started the conversation, you, you said off off offline to me, you know, they should do more to bulk up that position. And I agree that that position being the assistant secretary for special operations forces, because he has a very small staff and he doesn't report directly to the secretary of defense. And that's wrong because he needs a larger staff among the civilians to, to be able to get the resources the special ops need. And he, he can't be cut out. He, to a large extent, the special ops are so special, and it's going to grow in cyber too, by the way, that they, they deserve to have somebody equivalent to the Secretary of the Navy or the Secretary of the Army. So um, I'm not special pleading for the sake of my son because he's left that post now but i am for the special operations forces they they need a civilian who is given more clout and and i hope that happens and uh before we sign off i just wanted to ask you you mentioned uh general mattis and i know you spent a lot of time with him o over the years and you wrote a book along with him about leadership and uh you know um I think a lot of people really admire General Mattis out there. Uh, he seems to be one of those kind of guys that he's kind of like the Captain Cruz who made it all the way to the top because he, he's not a paper pusher either. No, Jim Mattis is not. And that's why he left after two years. Um, you know, it, Jim will just tell you the truth. I mean, and oh, he works. I mean, Steve, unbelievable work ethic. Uh, but he is, he is, it, it's scary how honest he is. He'll just tell you logically what he's thinking and what he expects. So the troops loved him because he said, you know, they, when he went on a battlefield, he grew fangs. I mean, you know, he, he went on a battlefield for only one reason. He, he actually changed the orders at one point when we went into Fallujah from capture or kill to kill or capture to make sure that people understood what he expected was going to happen when you went into those houses where the terrorists were hiding. Um, Jim Mattis is just a straight shooter who is really smart 
and totally dedicated. But he, he won't duck. When you ask him a question, you're going to get the answer. I imagine getting together with him and writing the book was probably uh, uh, a lot of fun for you as well. Ha! Are you kidding? It was <laughs> agony. Can you imagine? I mean, I'm wishy-washy. You know, I'm just a Marine. You know, you can push me around. Can you imagine putting Mattis and me on the same phone trying to get one sentence done? You know, you know, we we spent we spent two years for for three hours, four hours a day, you know, in in intellectual hand to hand combat about every single sentence, you know. So, you know, you I try to tell you, you 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 undertake a task with Jim Mattis. He he throws his body and soul into it. So, but but I think it, I think that book is called Call Sign Chaos. I think it's really a good book. It tells you why Jim Mattis was such a good leader. You know, it has good leadership lessons. Excellent. Well, that's something I think that's in short supply these days. We need we need better leaders and we need good ones, especially for our troops, if we're going to put them out there in harm's way, because we don't need to be fighting 20-year wars that, you know, we're asking our troops to do what they're not trained to do. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Well, sir, thank you for taking the time with us uh, this afternoon. Uh, I want to thank you for, for joining us. Um, uh, you know, your book was fantastic. I look forward to the next one. Um, and, um, yeah, we hope to have you on here again soon when that one does come out. But be, before we leave, uh, I just want to say, if you want to get soft rep on your phone, Download our free mobile app and get easy access to our articles, podcasts, and gear reviews, all perfectly formatted to your device. Please subscribe to softrep.com to get access to all our library of eBooks and our exclusive team room forums and content available on all your Apple and Android devices. Uh, for all of us here at softrep.com and softrep radio, uh, Mr. West, thank you for joining us. Your book was fantastic. We look forward to many more. And uh, let's do it again real soon. All right. Thanks an awful lot, Steve. Simplify. All right. Take care. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio.